fighter aircraft that is the key for the future of air defences of Australia and the United States. A fifth generation fighter that has advanced stealth capabilities plus the speed of a fighter, the agility and not only the ability to attack in the air but on the ground as well. Australia has committed to 72 of the aircraft, $17 billion, $124 million per aircraft. There's only one problem and that is Each of those F-35 Lightning aircraft requires 400 kilograms of rare earths. This is the key to not only its defence systems, but also its stealth capabilities. And the real issue of that is right now, those rare earths have to be sourced from China. That's until Monday, and a new announcement that involves an Australian mining company. The US cannot send its military to war without heavy rare earths. And at present, the only place in the world that separates heavy rare earths is China. So the facility that we're, we're talking about establishing in Texas, in the US, in the first instance, will be a heavy rare earth separation plant. And we will then follow that up with further industry development. So that's Linda Lacars, the chief executive of Linus, that will put in this separation plant in the United States, the very first outside of China. And it is a key strategic development between Australia and the United States and our defence capabilities. Twice in the last decade, CEOs have had to sit up and take notice. And that is in 2010, China threatened to stop the export of rare earth materials to Japan. And again, in the trade wars, or trade tensions between the US and China over the last 18 months, one of the threats from China has been to stop the export of rare materials. That means that one journalist, not this one, not Fortune, actually said that the trade tensions meant that Linus was the prettiest girl at the dance. (laughs) And I'm very happy to wear that badge. Now, just to explain rare earths, they're actually very common. The problem of rare earths is not finding them. The problem of rare earths is processing them into the metal that can be used. The reason is because you can get out of these rare earths magnets, super magnets that are not only three times stronger than typical magnets, but also just a tenth of the size. You can understand why that would be important, not only in, say, military weapons and aircraft, but also in everyday occurrence. Think wind farms, think anything that uses a turbine that requires a magnet. But it's not just that, it's also in the manufacture of glass and ceramics, even your smartphone screen. And that's the reason why strategically production and the processing of rare earths is so important. So then we go back to Monday where Linus has come out with a statement and effectively says that what they have done is entered an arrangement with the Department of Defence. They've signed a contract. Now Linus already had created a processing plant in Malaysia. They have 
a mine in Mount Weld in Western Australia. The brilliance of this is that going to Malaysia meant that they could produce NDPR, neodymium is the ND, the praseodymium is the PR. And together, those things are the rare earths that are being sought by so many around the world, including China and the United States. Now, if you can then process those into the metals, then you clearly have an ability to really, if you like, dominate the world. The only place where they're processed and separated right now are in China. And that's what this deal in the United States with Linus is all about. So the Department of Defense has allowed them to try and get this. It would be the only source of separated heavy rare earths outside of China. And of course, those rare earths would come from the mine from Western Australia that Linus owns. So this is a genuine breakthrough. And this plant is expected to cost around $50 million US. It'll be done in a deal with a company called Blue Line. And in many ways, this is revolutionary because the United States generally does not allow foreign companies to come in and be key suppliers to its Department of Defence. The one I can remember is when Talus in Bendigo was making the Bushmaster, when all the IEDs were really having a, a significant impact and obviously killing a lot of troops uh, when they were going through Afghanistan in particular. Now, there the United States wanted the Bushmaster. And despite the fact that they went and pitched for the bid to supply Bushmasters to the US Department of Defence, they got knocked back for a United States alternative, notwithstanding the fact that the Bushmaster was considered the best vehicle for the job at the time. So along with a couple of... So a couple of developments today economically, but also clearly in regards to the response to coronavirus. One of those has been the inflation rate, which the uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics has said is the lowest on record, the biggest quarterly fall in the 72-year history of the Consumer Price Index. The reason largely is uh, because of the government response to coronavirus, where there was free childcare. So the cost of childcare fell by 95% during this period. There was also a big fall in the price of, of fuel, petrol. Uh, it was down by 19.3% in the quarter. And then even the cost of preschool and primary education was down by 16%. You imagine that might be even partly some people not sending kids to school as a result of coronavirus. But it is just interesting to note that the impact of this is expected. All of this was actually built in um, but it really means that if it does continue, you've got deflation. But that ain't going to happen. And the reason for that is if you go back and have a little bit of a look at some of the things rising in prices, think of audio, visual and computing gear. Uh, that's people staying at home. That's up 1.8% in the quarter. The price of furniture up 3.8%. Major household appliances up by 3%. Um, and even toilet paper up 4.5%. This is all because people are staying at home more often. Uh, and I think that's a really important point. If people aren't able to get out to work, uh, then they're actually spending more on their own homes. If people aren't allowed to travel overseas, they're travelling locally. On that subject, the other big story of the day clearly is the Queensland government deciding to close its borders to residents of Greater Sydney. This is after um, community outbreaks that have gone from Melbourne via Sydney into Queensland. And so as a result, the very uh, first new people with COVID in the Queensland community since May. And so as a result, uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk, the Queensland Premier, has effectively closed the border uh, to people from Greater Sydney coming into Queensland for the next period of time. But I do note one small thing, and that is just something that all government, state premiers and others have got to think about. 
And this is the head of the emergencies program of the World Health Organization, Mike Ryan. Just have a listen because it goes almost counter to the idea of closing these borders. It is going to be almost impossible for for individual countries to keep their borders shut for the foreseeable future. Economies uh, have to open up, people have to work, uh, trade has to resume. But continuing to keep international borders sealed is not necessarily a a, a sustainable strategy for the world's economy, for the world's poor, uh, or for anybody else. So we really do have to make progress. So it's okay to really close your borders to try and prevent the community outbreaks of coronavirus. But you've got to also look further forward, much further forward, and really try and work out how do you open these borders ever. Everybody right now is banking on the idea that there is going to be a vaccine. And you would really hope it turns up tomorrow and is effective and is plentiful and can be rolled out so life can get back to whatever normal was before. But you can't necessarily bank on that. And this is the reason why closing borders must also come with a plan of reopening, reopening economies and reopening those borders. So can you imagine, say, for example, even in Queensland, which doesn't have international tourists coming in there right now, doesn't have people from Victoria or New South Wales in the major metropolitan area. Just, again, what it does to crush many of the tourism industries and the hospitality industries. It really is almost a double blow, a double whammy. But, as I say, it's one of these points whereby you've got to plan now for how you can reopen borders. That's the key, and that's what Mike Ryan was getting to. Okay, just a final one, as I promised for you uh, today, and this is regards to our banks. I spoke about banks last week, um, and the decision that was going to be made by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority as to whether they should be allowed to pay dividends. Who says as to whether a private company should be allowed to pay dividends? But it seems now that our government regulator somehow has got it in its mind that it's now the purveyor of what private business should do. Now, that being said, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, which never covered itself in glory because it was never tough enough on banks and other financial institutions when they were doing the wrong things, has now come out and decided it's going to be prescriptive in how much dividend they can pay. Now, as you're aware, after some guidance from APRA earlier this year, there are a number of banks that basically suspended all lower dividends, which included three of the big ones. Westpac, which of course has its own separate problems that are undergoing in regards to Austrac and whether it's going to pay out the best part of a billion or a billion and a half dollars in compensation. That's before the Attorney General. It gave him a slap even in the past day or so. Uh, Christian Porter. Now, in the meantime here, APRA has basically said that they are going to allow, allow, strange word, um, the banks to pay out half of their normal dividends. Now, they've also again got to offer a dividend reinvestment plan, which you'd have to think was pretty obvious that the banks would have done that because they'd be trying to hold on to capital themselves anyway. So the statement was, APRA has written to banks and insurers advising they should maintain caution in planning capital distributions, including dividend payments. In additional guidance for the banking sector, APRA has indicated for the remainder of the calendar year, boards should seek to return at least half of their earnings when making decisions on capital distributions and utilise dividend reinvestment plans and other initiatives to offset the diminution in capital from capital distributions where possible. Now, as you and I both know, A, there's a lot of investors who have bank shares who need The shareholder returns need the dividends. On the other hand, of course, as I've said before, it's the banks that ultimately are going to carry the can 
when you've got wholesale unemployment and people not being able to pay back mortgages and businesses when eventually the government takes off the bandage around the economy which is allowing businesses to trade while insolvent. Bear in mind also that Deloitte previously said that there's hundreds of thousands, I think 270,000 businesses it believes will collapse when that band-aid comes off. But in the meantime, we've got to wait for the next week or so when the Commonwealth Bank makes its profit announcement It'll be just interesting to see what dividend policy they pursue at that time. Send me your feedback, whatever you like, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever it might be. I'm Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes.